gathered as a people to worship you, to hear from you, to obey you, Lord, to experience your love for us and your help, Lord. You are the mighty warrior, sinner's friend. Lord, you're here for us. You hear our cause and you hear our pleas for mercy. Be with us. All right, so we are quickly wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. We are in like kind of the the closing conclusion. If you turn to Matthew chapter 7. I guess I'm I'm going to start in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like, a, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was not teaching them as one, he was teaching them as one who had authority, not So we we are right here um, at the part dealing with beware of the false prophets. But kind of leading up to this, you, you notice a theme in these kind of last little teachings. You know, enter by the narrow gate. Beware of false prophets. You know, not everyone who says Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven and build your house on the rock, not the sand. And so it's like Jesus is reiterating again and again and again, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to obey? 
who are you going to follow? Because you're going to follow someone or something. So, it's really interesting, I think, if you look at the pattern, Matthew starts off with a genealogy, just like Genesis starts off with genealogies. And then he moves into, like, the Exodus, where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness as the people of Israel were tempted in the wilderness. And then here's Jesus standing on a mountain giving his law, like Moses. And when Moses gave his law, in Deuteronomy, the set, Deuteronomy is the second given the law, where he's reiterating again, okay, you're about to go. You're about to go into the land. You're about to be my people. Now beware. So in Deuteronomy, in chapter 18, Moses closes off with this warning saying, you know, they're going to be false prophets. There are people who are going to try to draw you away from me and my commandments. And they're going to be out there. And you, and you can identify them if you're watchful, if you're looking for it. If you beware, you'll see them. And so there's, there's criteria like if they say, it does say it the Lord and it doesn't come to pass. They're not a prophet. They didn't speak from me. And you can ignore them. He says, you do not have to be afraid of them. So that was Moses. And here's Jesus. He's wrapping up his Sermon on the Mount, his giving of the, his law of love on the mountain. And he's saying, now there's going to be people who are going to try to pull you off of this, try to get you to not accept my words. And you need to beware. Whether or not people do it intentionally. Maybe you can argue that people are going to try to draw you away from Christ and his words with good intentions. But those are people, do not forget, there is a devil who speaks your soul. And he twists the mind of unbelievers to try to draw people astray. And so their minds are caught by the devil. And with their good intentions, so they think, they draw you away from Christ and then to your destruction. So who are you going to listen to? And who are you going to follow? Jesus is the true prophet, the prophet of all prophets. At the end of Deuteronomy, the people had been listening to Moses for years, their whole lives. And he said, now you're about to go into into the promised land. And they kind of look at him. Who are we going to listen to? How are we going to hear from God? Now, when they were at the mountain, when they're out Mount Sinai, God spoke to the congregation, and they were terrified. Thunder and fire and lightning, because God is a holy God, a righteous God, and he can't bear sin. And so people, sinful people, when they come into the presence of God, are shooken to the core. Shaken? Shooken. Shaken. To the core. Right? And so they said, the people of Israel said, I don't want to hear this. I am terrified. You go, Moses, hear from God and bring it back. So he did. And and God said, this is right, that you should recognize your plight before me, that you're still going to hear my words. You still need to hear from me. And so Moses was that intermediary. He would go, hear from God, bring it back to his people. And now Moses is about to die, and of course they're thinking to themselves, like, so now what? But Moses says, God is going to raise up from your congregation someone like me. Someone like me, a lawgiver, someone who goes before me. And so then you, you see that come a succession of prophets, there's prophets who give God's word, but they all have this forward look, that though they are prophets, they are looking forward to this one Messiah, this fulfillment, this coming one, this anointed one, 
and they're waiting. So these prophets, as it's just like the kings, you know, there's good kings, there's David, but there's a better king. There's Solomon, but there's a better king. So there's prophets, but there's a better prophet. There's a better prophet. There's a better prophet. And then, you know, Israel goes into exile. They come back from exile, and then silence. No prophets for hundreds of years. And then one prophet shows up, John the Baptist, with a simple message: Repent, time is coming. The kingdom is coming. There is one coming. There's a short message, and he was off the scene, and then in steps Jesus. Now Jesus, he was the very word of God. People were given the word of God, and they spoke the word of God. Jesus, as it was, was the very word of God, the very expression embodied in a person. The very expression of all that God was about. None of you listen to Jesus' words. You look at Jesus and say, what are you doing? Because you are doing something. You are the very word, message, character, display of God and his love for us. And when Jesus comes, it's fundamentally different. Fundamentally different. Or as the author of the book of Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us, to our fathers, by prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as an heir of all things, through whom he created the world. His Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And his son upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you remember that moment when Jesus is on what they call the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And the glory of Christ is revealed. He's shown with the brightness of a glory that only belongs to God. And, and Moses and Elijah appear. Moses and Elijah appear. And they're talking with Jesus. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses was... The character, like, the lawgiver in Elijah was considered to be the greatest prophet. So here's the lawgiver and the prophet speaking and communing with Jesus, the very word of God. And then God's voice, the Father, says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, all that Moses and Elijah represented and spoke of was pointed to and fulfilled by Jesus. When Jesus comes, you don't go backwards. God says, this is my son, listen to him. So this is for us. We have the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is speaking to us. Christ is teaching us. He's giving us his message. Now he's demanding from us a response. And in this passage, Christ is warning us that there are going to be these false prophets that come into the midst of his people. It's going to happen. Who would draw you away and keep you from the freedom that Christ has given you. Christ has given you freedom, and they want to take it from you. So in this passage, he warns us. He shows us how to spot these guys. He tells us of their end. He warns us. He gives us evidence of what to look for. He tells us. Verse 15, the warning. Beware. Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, our life is filled with beware. Caution. Right? Coffee cups says caution. Hot contents. 
science says caution, something. There's warning signs all around. I think we're pretty good at like drowning out warnings. Beware, okay? Yeah, we'll be fine. Okay, so imagine like you're driving up north and you see that elk crossing sign. It says warning elk crossing. And you're like, uh huh. And you're driving, and all of a sudden you see two tow trucks like pulling some cars back out. Okay, now you're thinking to yourself, you know what? Maybe there's something to this warning this time. And so they're like, like you're going around those curves like with full attentiveness, right? You're, you're like, you're like 100% engaged. Okay, that's what Christ is calling you to be. Like 100% engaged. Like there are like these train wrecks, people's lives ruined by false teachers. Okay, so you need to be on high alert continuously. Don't let your guard down at all. Every generation. Every local expression of the church, the American church, the Fortuna church, like everywhere, there are going to be our own unique challenges. There are going to be false teachings that come into your life. We're going to have ours. So notice that Jesus is being generic at this moment. Jesus could easily say, beware the false prophets, <coughs> a.k.a. scribes and Pharisees. Like some specific particular people. Now, later on in Matthew, he's going to do that. He's going to say these exact words, beware the false prophets, Pharisees, the scribes. He's going to point them out specifically. But right now, he's intentionally being generic. Because this is not just something that's true for his people then, this is true for his people now. And it's going to be true of his people throughout our time on this side of the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, Christ is going to clear everything up. Now, who are these false who are false prophets that we need to be concerned about. They are people that claim to be God's spokesmen, but they are not. They are those who, while claiming for themselves the capacity to define for others the will of God, they represent in their own practice a false understanding of the will of God. They say, we've got this figured out, listen to us, follow me. But in reality, they have a false understanding and it shows up in their practice. Now, do they necessarily have to have the gift of prophecy? That's one of the questions I Do they necessarily have to say, I have received a vision or a word of the Lord? Okay, not necessarily, not exclusively. This will happen. This can happen. It can happen in America. But in First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 2, he says, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So, false prophets, false teachers kind of being set side by side. They're doing the same thing. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves a swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. God's paying attention. So false prophets, false teachers is kind of the same category. People coming to you saying, this is what God's will for your life is. In reality, not true. Now there are three. Add four. Let me add four. Okay. Sounds long. Okay. There's some people who claim no God. No God. There is no God. Here's what it is. You should go this way. They probably would disagree with what I'm about to say. I understand why they would. 
But the Bible says there is no such thing as someone who believes in no God, first of all, and you serve some type of idol. Somehow, you think you're independent of any spiritual force in your life. The Bible says, no, there are spiritual forces acting on every single human being in this world. Even though they don't think so, it's true. So there's people saying, there's no God, and this is the way you should go. They worship, as the Bible says, they worship demons. Kind of strange. The Egyptians. Some I was just re- listening to some study on the Israel captivity of Egypt. Let me go ahead and explain this. The Egyptians thought the Jews were atheists. Weird, because because they prayed to the guy in the sky, the the unknown, unseeable God. Uh huh. Atheist. Whereas they had their idols and they had things that they could look at. I say like sun god, cow god. Rob's God, like our gods are visible. You can interact with them, but your God just seems to be way up there. So they call them atheists. In some ways, I, I kind of think too, just when I talk to people, just the worldview that says this that this material world is all there is. It's just a slight deviation from that thing. Is what some people have called it neo paganism. Pagans, you're just kind of beyond it, but you really still worship this this creation, this material world. You know, evolution has intelligence, right? It makes decisions. It's there. Okay, so that's my first one. Now, spiritual people. Okay, so those who think they're not, but they are. Okay, there are three types of false prophets, false teachers. Okay, they're the straight-up false prophets who say, I have had a vision from the Lord, do this. Like Joseph Smith had a vision that reinterpreted the whole gospel. And these, I mean, every religion in some way has some type of kind of a vision-giving experience says, this is what God said. All right, so there are people who can come to you and say, thus saith the Lord, I've had a vision, when in fact, God says, they have not received a vision from me. Now, there have been a few of these people. I don't think this happens a whole lot, but man, when these people come around, huge amounts of devastation. You get huge, huge religious following, and people are led astray. So you can have a straight-up false prophet. But the second type, I think, probably more common, are those who have some version of what's called syncretism. Syncretism. So most false teaching that's gotten into this church, most of what's come into in church history, has been some type of mix between our culture and our religion. Like, you know, like, well, you know, maybe these can coexist in some way. So you kind of take some of the good out of Christianity, you take some of the good out of your kind of cultural practices, and you mesh them together. And this, this happened immediately with the church, the early church, with, with, the, with the Jews and the Christians. The Jews said, oh yeah, Jesus is great. Oh yeah, Jesus died for your sins. He's the atonement. Oh yeah, he is. This is all great news, but you know, you still need to practice the law. So they're trying to take the law and bring it in and mix it with Christianity. And, and it's such a big deal that there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to that very conversation called Galatians. Like, you can't mix these things. The gospel is the gospel. As soon as you try to mix anything else in with the gospel, it's not the gospel anymore. The gospel disappears. But, you know, we don't have people telling us, hey, yo, Levi, you need to practice the law. 
you need to like wear non-mixed fibers and not eat pork. Okay, I don't. That doesn't happen. So, so what is it? What type of syncretism creeps into our church? What are we seeing in America? What are we seeing here? See, the problem with like syncretism, like this type, like meshing things together, is it's it's so innocuous. It's like a it's like a gas you can't smell because they're they're like they're tugging at your heartstrings because you are a culturally conditioned person. There's things that as a raw raw American or an individualistic Western person, they really just resonate with you. By golly, when Christianity starts resonating with you on the same chords, you're like, oh, this is great. This must be true. Instead of looking at the Bible, the Bible would challenge you on that. Tim Keller, the pastor over in New York City, I like him a lot. He says, you know, if Christianity agrees with you on all points, you might be worshiping a false god. You see, like, you're kind of following yourself. Like, really, I mean, God's going to disagree with you at some point. It's not a god of your own making. So in our church, in the, in, the Christ, in the American church, there's been this movement towards liberalism, liberal church. I think you've heard this. I think it's, I mean, it's still obvious today. So, so many denominations have gone this way. There, back, I mean, this happened way back in the early 1900s. And so there's one, one Presbyterian pastor who was in a Presbyterian congregation that was going liberal. And he, so he stood up, he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And this is what he says. So, Liberals were, you know, it's not a name that he made up for them. They named themselves. We're liberal Christians. And so he says, okay, this is the problem. And here's his quote. What is the relationship between Christianity and modern culture? May Christianity be maintained in a scientific age? Because you realize we talk about these things like miracles and Jesus rising from the dead and floods and all these supernatural things, and it really just, you know, we're not there anymore as a culture. You know, we've moved on. So he says, so this is the problem that we were up against. What is the relationship between Christianity and the modern culture? May Christianity be maintained in a scientific age? And so he says, it is this problem which modern liberalism attempts to solve. Admitting that scientific objections may arise against the particularities of the Christian religion, against Christian doctrines and the person of Christ, and of redemption through his death and resurrection. In other words, you can't have like the scientific worldview and have this. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So then what? So the liberal theologian seeks to rescue certain general principles of religion, of which these particularities are thought to be merely temporal symbols. And these general principles he regards as constituting the essence of Christianity. In other words, there's an essence of Christianity. Stick with those. You can kind of jettison the rest. and You, know, you can talk about Jesus, but not his resurrection. That's fine. It's okay. Because the essence of Christianity is love. So as a matter of fact, he goes on to say, what the liberal theologian has retained after abandoning the in- to the enemy, one Christian doctor after another, is not Christianity at all. It's just not Christianity at all, but a religion which is so entirely different from Christianity as to be a distinctly different category. It bears no resemblance to what Christianity was. Okay, so that was his quote. So as a result, you don't have an inerrant Bible. The Bible does not contain the word of God. It contains human mythology. Good idea. You don't have a Jesus as a son of God, but really just a really good example of a man. Jesus' death, rather than being this cosmic event where where Jesus bears the wrath of people on this world, he's simply the best example and premier example of sacrificial love. And so ultimately, like the salvation that they offer is not a salvation of all. It becomes really legalism. 
Just follow Jesus. Do good things, and good things will happen to you. It has nothing to do with God's power working in your life. It's gone. And so you, full circle, you're bound by moralism, legalism. That's happening today in our churches. More locally, weirdly enough, when I, I talk to people, I'd go to Arcata all the time and like, talk to people on the, on the plaza. People like to talk on the plaza. We had some good conversations. And I notice a flavor, a syncretism. As I come up and say, Jesus is God. They say, yep. Okay, that's on some good ground. And they'd be like, and so are you. I'm not God. Like, like I'm not God. No, Jesus is God. And so, and so, and so I began, like, as I began to, like, delve into this, it's like a, a syncretism that said, like, you know, it was basically, it's basically new age meets Christianity. Hinduism, like, we're all divine beings, and Jesus is just one of the most enlightened divine beings, along with Buddha, Krishna, and Muhammad, although they don't often say that one. Um, I don't like them. But, and so, the point is, is that people want to mix these things, and they sound and they feel good, but it, it ends up being false gospels. Christianity, specifically, Jesus himself. He challenges all over all other religious claims. Either Jesus is who he said he was, or there's nothing left to talk about. Either he was who he said about, or we should just stop having this conversation. Either he was God and he came to redeem humanity, he died for sins, he rose in victory and death, or, or really just I, I, there's nothing else to talk about. Why are we even concerned about this guy named Jesus Christ? Be he a light and being, I don't care. I'm going to go my own way. But if he is God, I'm listening. And if he is God, and if Jesus is correct, salvation is found nowhere else. And if he calls you, you need to follow him. You need to cling to him. You need to forsake all other claims, even the ones that we can create in our own minds. So the straight up false prophets, there's people try to mix and match syncretism. And then there are these false teachers, these false prophets, probably even a little closer home, spiritual leaders who don't blatantly reject Scripture, they just twist it and hold it over people. They look like good pastors, but they're holding it over people. They overplay certain Scriptures and completely miss the point. So, for example, so I think some Westboro Baptist Church, right, the ones who are picketing all the Christian, you know, all the things. So I watched some extended documentary on Westboro Baptist Church. And when they're talking, they're trying to explain themselves. I'm like, I hear scripture. Everything they say, I hear scripture. You just have no clue about the gospel. You have no idea about forgiveness of sins and that Jesus came to die. They just, that never comes up. And so even though they look church and they sound like a church, they're not the church. Love is gone from that church. The gospel is gone. Jesus is no, they, I've never, maybe it's just good editing on the part of the people who make these documentaries, but they never mention Jesus. As an extreme example. But churches that are like just so caught up with controversies, just full of hate, who, who are like, we're the only true church and everyone else is wrong. Like completely 100% exclusive. False. And you're holding people in bondage. So how do you recognize? 
They're out there. How do you recognize them? The Bible gives you kind of two categories. Listen to the doctrine, watch their life. Okay. Now, Jesus right now is going to be on the watch their life. Like, what's the outcome of their teaching? Doctrine would be another one. Just not addressing that right now. So he says in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree that bears good fruit, ah, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So in other words, he's saying you can recognize false teachers by their fruits. Notice that Jesus using this image and doubling down on it, crippling down on it. He's just kind of bang, bang. He's really like, their fruit, their fruit, their fruit, their fruit. Pay attention to their fruit. So someone comes up to you and said, hey, I've got a basket full of figs. You look in there, there's brambles. You say, Where'd you get that? To a fig tree. It's like, brambles, you didn't get that from a fig tree. There's no way you got that from a fig tree. These are weeds. Right? So the same way, if someone comes up and they're living this life that, he's, that we're going to describe, you say, where'd you get that? It wasn't from Jesus. It's not what Jesus is all about. A true spiritual leader bears fruit in keeping with repentance and righteousness. These are people, he says, that outwardly they look like good, moral people, sheepskins, but inside they're ravenous. Their motivation is not to seek the good of the neighbor, but to devour them. Okay, the ways that you can see this, these are like all the categories the Bible lays them out. We're going to read a passage that you'll see it all when we get to the end of these descriptions. But there are some people who use their spiritual authority to puff up their own sense of self-worth. They like the power, they like the prestige, the pride of being numero uno. And people coming to them and like, we want your advice. We want to hear from you. Yeah, we really like you. And they like it. And that's why they're up there. They don't like it because they like you or they like God. They're up there because they like themselves. They like to hear themselves speak. And they have no concern about the needs of people. They have, a, they have a soapbox, they have a platform, and they're enjoying it. They act as lords and kings over the little kingdom. Whereas a true spiritual leader, Jesus says, this person would serve from love. They would seek your well-being. Jesus says that he who is great in the kingdom is a servant of all, laying their lives down day by day for his friends. Sacrifice. There are some who use their position of authority to destroy the unity of the church. They, they, they're kind of observed as being spiritually, spiritually wise, but they don't love God. They don't love the church, and they do not believe Scripture. And they start introducing modifications, like Christianity has never heard it before. A bad sign. They don't love God, they don't love the church, they don't love you if they're trying to pull you away from God. Some people, they get in there, they want to be pastors, they want to be spiritual leaders to kind of, they have an idea and they want you to kind of follow them down that trail. Whereas a true spiritual leader is one who loves the church and loves the doctrines of the Bible because he loves God. He loves God and he loves the words that God gave his church. If the Bible contains the words that God gave to his people, then those people out of love for you will not deviate from it. There was this moment when Jesus says some very, very hard things. And there's a whole crowd just turned around and walked away. 
leaving Jesus with his disciples. Jesus looks at them and says, why are you still here? Now, I imagine the disciples were also feeling like, that, Jesus, really? Did you have to say that? Did you have to, like, like flower it up a little bit? Did you have to say that? And so Jesus is looking at them and kind of like, so what about you? And so Peter says, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else do we turn? A true spiritual leader is going to go hard places. Talk about hard things. Stuff that makes people walk away. Because they love God, they love the church, and where else are we going? There are some who use their spiritual authority to make a profit. In fact, the main characteristic of a false teacher in the Bible is they want money. Now, this can look as innocuous as a pastor who's simply trying to draw a salary, have a job, to get paid month in, month by month, right? They really don't want to be a pastor. They really don't care anymore. They really don't care about the flock. They're just wore down, and they're just simply in it because they want money. They need, they just need the income. Okay, that's greed showing up. There's some who are just straight up blatant. So one of the most heartbreaking conversations I've ever had was with a pastor of Uganda that I was friends with, an NCO. And he was telling me about the faith healers that had come into Uganda's capital, Kampala. And he was this part of some like stick village, Bunji Bujo. And he said, they never come out to my place. There's no money. Really? There's no money. They come into the main area of Kampala, and they set up these great tents. They hype it, they hype it, they hype it. And they show up, and they'll say, do you have malaria? Well, you need a little faith to heal that. You have to give a little gift. Do you have AIDS? Oh, you need a lot of faith for that. And you have to give a big gift. And so these people give like, and he was like, he was almost crying while I was talking to him. He was like, people are pulling out their life savings to have enough faith to heal somebody. And these people fly away and just take money. It's garbage. And unfortunately, in Africa, that's the Christianity people seem to mistrust. That's the number one missionary exodus. Faith healers coming and taking their money and walking away. Do you understand why they're jaded? True spiritual leaders are not in it for the gain. They're like Christ. They'll die. They'll die. It's not for the money. To live in poverty, hardship, do whatever it takes for the gospel to go forward so people may know the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of the gospel. They're not in it for the money. There's some people who have used their spiritual authority to take advantage of people emotionally and physically. They exploit people for their own passions. Truly wolves who devour people to satiate their own appetite, regardless of the destruction that they leave. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. 
First Timothy one, he says, the goal of our instruction is love. Love. What is love? Paul says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, says, remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. What is this love? Love is the love that is patient. It is the love that is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant, rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It is a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So if you have someone who claims it's a spiritual leader, it fails to show patience, can't show kindness. They're mean, they're envious of others, they boast a lot about themselves, they're rude, they always insist on having their own way, they're easily irritated, they hold grudges. It's evident that God has not transformed their hearts. They are false teachers, and this is the kicker. This is the kicker. You do not have to listen to them. You don't have to. There's a reason why God's qualification for his under-shepherds, as he calls them, he's the true shepherd, we'll get to that in a minute, for his under-shepherds, the qualifications is not that you know a lot of things. The qualifications for his under-shepherds is character. The character of being people who are sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but they're gentle, not quarrelsome, not lovers of money. Character that can. They're marks that God's transforming grace has been in their life. And a true under shepherd, someone who's not about themselves, will never point you to themselves as a solution. They will always point you to Christ, the true shepherd. If they're presenting themselves as the solution, again, walk away. If they're pointing you to Christ, as a solution, as a true shepherd, that is what they're there to do. Now, what is the end of the false prophets? What is their end? What is the conclusion of their lives? Verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You will recognize them by their fruit. A tree that does not produce fruit is worthless. Worthless. Why? If you have an apple tree that never gave you apples, and they're starting to take up space in your garden, how long are you can keep them there? You're not. It's gone. And, it's, and even worse, what if you have like something that's like blackberries? Like, I'll tolerate you. Turn around, turn, turn back around, and your whole garden's infested with blackberries. Right? So they have a, like a corrupting influence. Leave them alone, they get in. So too with these false prophets, these false teachers. There is a judgment coming for them when they're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire. The imagery of fire should not be lost on you. It is the imagery of hell. So turn to Second Peter chapter. So I'm just going to read. I'm not gonna, I'm just going to read it. Chapter 2. And let the weight of what he's saying fall. 
But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality because of them. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the final judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning to burning the, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, as he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormented in his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defying passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme glorious ones. Whereas angels, though great and mighty in power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgments against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wages of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. There are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, why they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery and insatiable for sin. They entice the unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloomy gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping, those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is a slave. For if after having, for after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness, and after that, knowing it, turn back to the holy commandment delivered to them. What is What the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit. The stow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It is important that we know this about them. Because it reduces their attraction. You don't want to follow after them and fall into that same state. And it makes you want to stay watchful and on guard and to vet the things that you're being told with Scripture. They blaspheme the Word of God. They blaspheme the way. They make God look like a liar. Think of what was happening in Africa. They make God look like a liar. And God is angry, wrathful. He will judge them for that. 
And it's also important that you know this because it shows you that God loves you. It shows you that God loves you. He loves his people. When you see someone act unjustly towards another, doesn't it move you to outrage? God is outraged. God will not let people who capitalize on his church to advance their pride, their wealth, their lust, he will not let them go unpunished. And the way it sounds, it's going to be worse for them than for many other people. Or to put it another way, Jesus is the good shepherd, and when wolves plunder his flock, the shepherd moves into action. Jesus loves his church. He died for his church. He was risen for his church. He ascended to reign for his church. He will come again and judge, and in judging, he will judge those who have persecuted his church, and that he will remove those people from his kingdom, so the church will forever have peace as they dwell with him into eternity. Spiritual leaders may have failed you. They may have used you. They may have exploited you, but Jesus never will. He is a true prophet. Listen to him. He'll cut you to the soul. His words pierce, but he's going to heal you. Jesus is the true shepherd. He'll protect you. He'll protect you through a thousand losses, disappointments, and hurts. He'll bring you through the valley of the shadow of death. He won't. They take you around the valley of shadows. They'll take you through it. But when he takes you through it, it'll be to rich pasture. How can you know you can trust him? How do you know you can trust him? Because he died for you. He died for you. Because he took your punishment. He bore your wrath. And then when he rose in victory from the grave, he's grabbing your hand and pulling you up into dry ground. He's pulling you out of the pit. And freeing you from your enslavement. He's freeing us. He's freeing you. He's freeing us. He's a true prophet. He was morally perfect. Christ was morally perfect. The disciples knew it. I mean, if he's fibbed, if he lied, if he did a little sneaky thing, he was like us. Come on, we figure it out. His disciples knew, deep down inside, he was perfect. His brothers probably knew it too. Can you imagine? Mom, Jesus. No, he didn't. <laughs> they knew it. And his brothers followed him after the resurrection. They knew it. And he is the good shepherd. So come to him. You will not be disappointed. Let's go to the communion. Let's feast with our King.
beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory Behold the man upon a cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished I will not boast in anything No gifts, no powers, no wisdom But I will boast in Jesus Christ His death and resurrection why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. thinking on the times I have been baffled by Jesus, used by Jesus, offended by Jesus. But when it's all said and done, I've never been disappointed. I think that's just going to keep being true and true. That him, Jesus, Jesus, I trust him, I approve him over and over. That's going to keep being true at this point. He's got a pretty good track record. 
as I talk to like different people and try to get like part of what they believe and oh I mean I think everybody recognizes that there's a problem with this world. And the question is what's the solution? There's nothing other than so compelling is Jesus. Whatever now, the gospel just fix my stuff. Sharing Christ in my life. So, yeah. I'll trust him. Trust him to the end. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you are the word, that you tell us the truth, that we can cash in our lives on you we will not be disappointed. Lord, if death and sin is the universal problem, Lord, you overcame sin and you overcame death. Lord, you are trustworthy and true. Protect us, Lord, from false teachers. Protect us from our own intuition, which sometimes would lead us down the wrong path. Lord, let us trust your word. Guard us. Guard us and protect us from wolves. Lord, help us to serve each other out of love. Love for you and love for our neighbors. We thank you. We praise you. We ask that you be with us. Thank you for being with us.